Hello and welcome to The Wounded Doctors, a podcast series dedicated to the study of and improved treatment of wounds. These episodes are brought to you by Convitec, pioneering trusted medical solutions to improve the lives they touch. My name's Rod Murray, and today we're going to hear part two of a conversation my co-host had with the very eloquent and very knowledgeable Matt Malone about silver. Dr. Fran Henshaw, welcome. What a breath of fresh air Matt is. Knows his stuff, but conveys that knowledge so that even the likes of me can understand it. This silver malarkey and wound dressings is fascinating stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, silver, as we know, has been used for a long time as a wound dressing, and Matt really kind of explains about how it works and addresses all the important points around why people sometimes uh, are a bit wary of silver I suppose and I think the other thing is he actually weaves his own research in so Matt does in vitro research which is when you have my maybe plates of bacteria and things like that then he does in vivo research which might be in people or animals and he also does clinical research in his hospital at Liverpool so he really helps us to understand the use of silver across the spectrum. Let's hear what Matt Malone has to say about silver. Look, silver's an amazing elemental compound. It's been around for a long time. Um, uh, And it has significant evidence, you know, to demonstrate it's highly effective as an antimicrobial agent, you know, against many sort of exponential phase planktonic bacteria. And sort of topical antiseptics such as silver differ from antibiotics, you know, in, in the way that they might work against things like biofilms in that, you know, they have multiple sites of antimicrobial action on the target cells. And without, you know, spending a long time going into that, they can have direct interactions between this, uh, the silver and the bacterial cell membranes that they can disrupt. They can interact with, you know, the um, host, uh, uh, my, uh, sorry, bacterial cell DNA, enzymes and proteins, and they can have indirect effects through the formation of reactive oxygen species, again, which disrupts cellular function. So they have a broad range of activity whereas an antibiotic for example only works effectively on a a dividing cell and and so you know biofilms uh, have been you know shown to have a reduced metabolism reduced cell function and therefore um, you know the antibiotic may not work as well against that because it's removed its target. So what's your view on antibiotic usage um, you know in terms of killing and preventing biofilm or treating wounds and how does it compare to silver? Because they're very different beasts, aren't they? They are. And I, th- you know, the, I think if we split this up and look at topical antibiotic use, that's had a long historic taboo in infectious diseases. And so you know, we still advise avoiding using topical antibiotics for treating wound infections, for example, as there's limited evidence for their effectiveness. And, and you know, we talk about they often select for uh, resistance in that colonizing bacteria. Now, systemic antibiotic use in treating chronic wound infection, I think the biggest problem here is it can lead to overly long or misuse of antibiotics again because the antibiotic most antibiotics you know have shown to need a hundred to a thousand times the therapeutic concentration to actually affect biofilm wow a hundred to a thousand times depending on which antibiotic and which model you look at that those therapeutic concentrations needed can be enormous um And so if, you know, you look at a chronic wound again, for example, I think there's, you know, a potential here that they get overused for for such a long time. Um, Whereas I think, you know, if you're able to do more local um, 
wound care with you know using topical antimicrobials as a as an adjunct for for good standard of care and debridement there's a potential that you could have a, a higher local effect yeah that makes sense really doesn't it that if you've got to give someone bucket loads of systemic antibiotics if you can target the wound locally then um obviously that's going to be uh, less um burden for the patient in terms of taking antibiotics and hopefully less treatment needed for that wound. So I think that there is, well, we know that there is a lot of data published that supports the use of silver as an antimicrobial. But what we hear in the field is that some clinicians are still concerned about silver toxicity. Why is this? And are these concerns valid? Look, I think it comes down to the fact that, again, um, you know, when we look at the the data, most of the data, virtually all the data has been done in vitro in cell lines and cultures and so forth. And so some in vitro studies have found that some silver containing dressings are cytotoxic to keratinocytes and fibroblasts and delay epithelialization in animal wound models. But again, conversely, other studies have found some silver preparations not to be toxic and have suggested that silver has actions that may promote healing. And so, you know, given that, that conflicting evidence, uh, I don't think there's any one that outweighs the other. And so, you know, we would just say that for clinicians, there's a, a wealth of positive clinical experience in the use of silver and a, a pragmatic, you know, sort of argument could be made that silver dressings just be used appropriately in, in sort of common with, you know, in common sense and recommendations for antimicrobial dressing use. And this is always a challenge, isn't it, in research, is that it's very easy to do very consistent research if you do it in a lab, you know, with a cell line or something like that. But you don't know if it actually reflects what happens in real life. And, you know, fibroblasts and keratinocytes are obviously very important cells in wound healing because, for example, fibroblasts make collagen, which fills in the wound. Um, and we don't want to kill these off. But then again, if we have to maybe sacrifice a little bit of, of those things in order to get rid of the uh, biofilm that's keeping the wound open, then that's a kind of trade-off that we might have to make. But I guess we don't really know what the trade-off is. W- would you agree with that? Well, you make a really good point, And I suppose it's right time, right place. And I suppose, again, you know, I always ask the clinicians, you know, when, when they're asking me about, you know, should I use this? My, my, my first thing is, what's your rationale for using it? Why are you using it? Okay, and if you've got a, a person with an infected wound, okay, like you said, if the infection is still present, the wound is not going to heal. So, you know, if the way to sort of break that barrier to healing um, or not non-healing is to remove the microorganisms then and, and silver is an opportunity to do that, then yes, you know, I think for the short term, you sacrifice some of those potential cytoto- you know, cytotoxicity they talk about versus killing the bugs and using it for that sustained short period that you can, the shortest period you can in the safest way for the patient so that you can actually get that, that wound healing again. And I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that um, more recently we've had much better delivery systems for silver so you know it used to be things like ssd cream that if you took too much you turned gray and probably didn't do you much good um whereas 
More recently, for example, in the Convertec uh, Aquacel AG, the silver is released at one part per million, which I would imagine in terms of potential cytotoxicity is, is going to pose much less of a threat. So I think perhaps some of this is a bit of a legacy item that people um, are a bit concerned about silver because previously the, the way it was delivered and the, the doses were more crude and, and less tolerable. Yeah, they were. But also, you know, on, on the, the, the first side of that is they were also probably highly effective, you know, against microorganisms. And again, I suppose it's what you're trying to do at that exact yeah. point in time. Are you trying to heal the wound? No, I'm not. I'm trying to get source control. Okay, how am I trying to get source control? By killing the bugs and removing them. Then I'm going to, you know, talk about wound healing. Yeah, so I think that's it. It's, it's trying to um, find the sweet spot, really, isn't it? Where we can not damage the tissue, but we can get rid of the biofilm. So data shows that the increasing ageing population and obesity are two key contributors to growing incidence of chronic wounds. Um, what other factors should we consider um, that increase wound longevity and, and stop wounds from healing? I've just, uh, I think here really, it's a growing population full stop, you know, and we have better medical care. We're living for longer with chronic diseases. Well, you know, whereas, you know, maybe 100, 150 years ago, these people just would, would have died from this. So we're keeping people alive for longer with, you know, much worse illnesses. And, and so, you know, that, that just in turn is going to translate into seeing more chronic wounds. I think obviously uh, a little bit more timely is that COVID-19 and access to care has been a big problem. And I think we've seen, you know, a, a, a real jump in the amount of of people coming in with with chronic wounds uh, over uh, covid and and now just after covid and we're still playing catch up uh, and so you know it's going to be really interesting to to see some some data coming out some long term data from people who've been looking at uh, that and i also think there's been a large shift you know probably in like the early 2000s in in healthcare where it's it's run as a business and it's so you know it's moved from providing high quality you know value based care to being around you know a patient equals a dollar and you know we got to do less uh, less with with more and right. um you know and I, and I think some of these patients with with these sorts of chronic wounds and chronic wound infections need need the, the opposite um, and, and I think, you know, people may not be getting the right care that they need because, you know, a clinician's trying to work through, you know, a list of 20, 30, 40 people during the day and she's and they're they're overrun and, and stuff. And so I think there's that component to it. Sure. You know, we've we've established that biofilm is a huge problem in wounds. And I know you've published to say that you've found it in about 78% of wounds, but you actually reckon that it probably could be higher. So what can we do with a wound to prevent biofilm formation in the first place? I think, you know, if you just look at it really simply, you've got to prevent the wound. <laughs> yeah, if you, want to, if you want to stop biofilm, you've got to prevent the wound. And, and I think that's through a holistic patient approach and, and mostly around education and training and preventative strategies. Um, maybe new technologies, you know, may allow for smart dressings that can detect um, early changes in a wound that can maybe pick up uh, these things. But, you know, if, if we go back to a simple case, if you have a person with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy who 
you know, goes walking and doesn't notice the, that they've, they've had a rub and it's created an ulcer until, you know, three, four days when he notices blood on his sock um, and then sort of just looks at it and gives it a bit of a wipe over and sticks a plaster on and it, and it just gets worse and worse until he goes to see someone. You know, you've missed that window by far, by a long, long time. And I actually think, you know, if you, if you quintessentially look at this, now I've done research that is, that is just been finished and I can tell you now in new research that we've done that biofilms can start to form from an in vivo environment within three hours. Okay? Wow. And, and by 12 hours, you've got a mature biofilm. And at 24, 48 and 72, you've just got these humongous, well-formed, mature biofilms. So if you look at that time window of you know, between three and 12 hours to prevent biofilm formation. Is it possible? It's probably not. Not what we ever see in patients. Maybe the only time is surgery. But then you could contend perhaps that um, people do have their own immune response. So what you see in a lab where there is no immunity trying to fight a biofilm, um, a a biofilm might form more quickly in a person. Would that be a possibility? Well, well, the stuff which we've just done is from a person. So this is in oh. vivo. Yeah. So this is in vivo work, which we've done with an immune system in place. Uh, and so, you know, like I, I just think if you look at our patients, will we ever be able to stop them? For the most part, no. You might have a few who you educate and say, you know, look, here's this um, advanced dressing. And if you ever get, you know, a cut or a rub, immediately place this dressing on and wash and care for the ulcer then then maybe yes you might have a, a chance to prevent um, maybe after surgery you know where you've gone in and had you know a really big debridement or, or some other sort of clean out wash out um, f- to remove things and yes you may have a window there where where you've the surgeon has reset to what they think is very very healthy uninfected tissue then again yes you may have a chance but for the normal person, Joe Blog off the street, who develops a wound, um, it's unlikely for the best part that you'll probably be able to stop that getting something in there and forming right. biofilm. That's, that's interesting. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time, Matt, dreaming about utopia. So in utopia, would everybody who was at risk of getting a wound, for example, a person with diabetes who we know has a 15 to 25% chance of getting a foot ulcer, if they're all given a little first aid kit that had some anti-biofilm, you know, preferably Convitex silver dressing, do you reckon that it, there is a possibility that you could actually... Um, prevent things from getting worse i mean you'd, you'd like to think that that was possible wouldn't you because you know this you could see this real cool little funky first aid kit that said you know step one use this washing cleansing fluid blah 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 step two put this plaster on step three you know monitor change every day etc you, you really would because you know that that's what we all aim for um I just don't know the reality of whether, you know, people would agree with prophylactic use of antiseptics and the sort of things you've, you'd have around that sort of prophylaxis use. But I think, you know, that there's really um, a big area here for extra research to be done, you know, looking at the benefits or not of maybe having this sort of um, philosophy. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when I did my PhD, I did it because I was tired of wounds not healing and I was really interested in wound healing. But um, it is so frustrating because wounds are so complicated that it really has made me kind of look more towards prevention. And I think what you're saying is, um, is, you know, quite relevant that we have such a small window to do this prevention and, and that is, makes it very difficult. Um, anyway, we've digressed a little bit, but that was very, very interesting. So I know we've had a conversation previously, Matt, where I said, how do you get rid of biofilm? And, and you were a great proponent of, um, aggressive sharp debridement. Um, but apparently when you do do aggressive sharp debridement, biofilm can come back within a few hours. Uh, what do you think about that statement? Yeah, it's true. And, and mostly because we can't see them. So you miss pockets, you know, and if the biofilm or the microorganisms are situated a bit deeper within the wound, you might not be able to get to them. You know, our data and Thomas's show that the, the microorganisms are just very heterogeneously spread in the wound tissue. Uh, so trying to identify where they are and adequately remove all of that infected tissue is is a great challenge. But I still think in the absence of having this magic bullet, that the best way is to physically, physically remove the biofilm. Who does this? The dentists do it. That's why we brush our teeth twice a day. That's why we clean pipes. That's why we use uh, anti-biofilm coatings on ship hulls. You know, that's why we remove infected implants, because the only real effective way is to physically remove the infection. And in the old days, when you got wounds that didn't go too well, they chopped your leg off. And it's the same concept, because unfortunately, the best way is to physically remove them until we have something which is highly effective. Right. So... Obviously, removing them is optimal. Um, is a multimodal approach needed? Is there more most, than just debridement? Yeah, most definitely, and you have to. And we talk about this a lot with the consensus guidelines, that, that just trying to physically remove them, whilst you know it's, it's what we report as being the best way, just because you can't remove them all because you can't see them and you're likely going to miss them, that that should be followed up with other uh, therapies and again as I've touched on that would be potentially if required systemic antibiotics um, if that was um, needed under you know sort of antimicrobial stewardship uh, I, I, but I think you know really the biggest part we play is the importance of having good local wound care so good standard of care wound bed cleansing wound bed preparation and the use of an appropriate use of antiseptics to continue to try and mop up maybe what we've not been able to get with a scalpel blade and to help the immune system out. So we really do need a very targeted approach here. And um, Matt, you just touched on the guidelines. I assume you're talking about the International Working Group for the Diabetic Foot Guideline? Uh, see, that, that predominantly looks at acute infections. And what I'm talking about is the consensus guidelines for the treatment, uh, diagnosis and treatment of wound biofilms with myself and Greg Schultz and Thomas Bjarnsholt. That was published, I think, in 2017. Right. So that's a really good resource for all of our clinicians, uh, I would imagine, to, to really find out what's going on. And 2017, are we updating it anytime soon or will it stand the test of time? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think sometimes there's just not, maybe not been enough advancements yet to, to really sort of make any further um, statements past that. I think it'd be, it'd be wise to update it at some point in the future. Um, whether we'll all be able to get the band back together is a different story. Yes, it's, it, 
Um, I'm sure you're all very busy people. I'd really like to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today about biofilm. And I certainly learned an awful lot myself. Thanks, Fran. I appreciate it. Anytime. So that was Dr. Matt Malone, clearly one of the brightest minds in biofilm and such an interesting person to talk to. Over to you, Rod. That was the second and final part of Dr. Fran's special interview with biofilm expert Matt Malone, and we hope that you enjoyed it as much as she did. We look forward to your company next time on The Wound Doctors. <laughs>